White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 727. Hello and welcome once again to Ranking the Bonds, the White Rocket Entertainment Network's James Bond Rankings program, part of On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. I am your host, Van Allen Plexico, and I am joined as always by my Bond co-host, Alan J. Porter. Welcome back aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. It's been a while since we last did this, but I'm looking forward to starting off the Roger Moore era, I guess. Yes, looking forward to it. And I think if we were going to take a little break, as we sort of had foisted upon us through outside forces, we picked a kind of a good time because we finished up all of the Conneries. We had Lazenby in there for one, and then we came back and rounded off Sean Connery. So we kind of did an era and then took a little break. So now we're going to get into the Roger Moore era. All right. So in this program, and our listeners may have forgotten as much of it as I have over the last several months, what we do, because we've already reviewed all of the, basically all the Bond movies, Eon and otherwise, pretty much, uh, we reviewed those in earlier episodes on this channel. And now we've been going back through and looking at them again uh, with an eye toward ranking the various aspects of them on a scale of 1 to 10. We look at things like the villains, the vehicles, the gadgets, the Bond girls, the music, what's age the best, what's age the worst, all these sorts of things, the whole new take on Bond. And so, as we alluded to a moment ago, we've done all the Conneries now, and we've done the Lazenby, and so we are up to the first of the Roger Moore Bonds tonight. We are up to 1973's Live and Let Die, which is one that I believe you and I lavished a fair amount of praise on back in the original program. Am I thinking correctly? I think so, yeah. I mean, this has always been like one of my top 10 Bond movies. So, yeah, without going back and looking, but yes, I think we... I think we spoke relatively highly of it when we talked about it, about it the first time. I think so, too. Um, by the way, we need to get this out of the way. And we may have already talked about it, and I've just forgotten. But And, it, and I think you had a good answer for it. But now that, it, now that we officially have His Majesty, is our show still un, under, on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast? Oh, yeah. That's when the yes, movies definitely. were made? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I guess... Um, I was going to say, I guess if they do a new one kind of uh, taking off on the 69 movie, then they would call it, they could call it on His Majesty's. But I think there's a book. Isn't there like a new, you might have it there, right? Yeah. Is that I a... I have it sitting on my desk. I haven't read it yet, but uh, yes, I do. It's there you a go. Novella, novella by Charlie Hickson that was rushed out to coincide with the coronation. So yeah. There you go. All right. Well, so so we will remain Her Majesty's, but... His Majesty's starting to creep into things already a little bit. So, yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, so um, the f- let's see. We how do we normally kick this thing off? Because honestly, I forgot. You, we normally kick it off with you talking about things that happened in 1973, just to set the stage. Okay, so here are some things, and I believe that was Michael Beggar's suggestion. I just want to make sure I wasn't forgetting something before that. Uh, but I do have several things that were happening in 1973. 1973 was the last year of U.S. participation in the Vietnam War, certainly from a combat forces perspective. We had negotiated, uh, I believe Henry Kissinger and Nixon negotiated uh, what they called the Vietnamization, where the U.S. left, handed things over to the South Vietnamese, who within two years promptly lost the entire country. Lyndon Johnson died. This is interesting. Lyndon Johnson died 
which meant that for one of the only times in American history, there was only one living president. That kind of blew my mind. Yeah, interesting. And who would that be? That would be... Nixon. Nixon, yeah. Yeah, Nixon was alive as president, but Johnson was dead. Obviously, Kennedy before him was dead. Um, uh, Eisenhower Eisenhower. had died, and then you had to go back to Truman was dead. So, yeah, for a brief while. That streak ended the following year when Nixon resigned and Gerald Ford became president. Then we had two. And then um, it's funny because after Jimmy Carter, the rule becomes you have the current president, the former president, and Jimmy Carter, (laughs) who will live forever, (laughs) apparently. In fact, I calculated this the other day. That Jimmy Carter now has, because he's in his 90s, there have now been almost as many presidents after he was president in his lifetime as there were before he was president. That's another really unbelievable statistic. Yeah, he just seems unstoppable, doesn't he? He is amazing, yeah. Uh, Yeah. The Roe v. Wade decision Supreme Court, which was recently overturned. Um, let's see, Gerald Ford again replaced Sparrow Agnew, which is leading up as part of leading into Watergate. The Miami Dolphins had the only perfect season in NFL history that year. A lot of the Watergate investigation was going on, and we had the Saturday Night Massacre, among other things. The Godfather won Best Picture at the Oscars. The World Trade Center opened in New York City and, and was there for about 30, I guess, years almost. The Sears Tower also opened and was the tallest building in the world until 1998. I was just up there a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah, uh, I've been up there. It's not the Sears Tower anymore, is it? It's something else. It's, I still the think Willis, it it's the Willis Tower, but everybody in Chicago calls it the Sears yeah, Tower. And they will I still think of it as Sears Tower. Yes, they'll yeah. punch did you, you, did, you, did you go out on the, the, the observation deck on the Good Lord. Floor? We got up there, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And we walk up to it and see it's like a glass box sticking out the yeah, side. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, it is incredible. People were going out in it and leaning on it and everything. And I'm like, I'm like clinging to the back wall because you think you're in a building. It's not like you're hanging out of an airplane or something. But I just there's part of my brain that says that thing's going to break off and fall down. And I don't want to be in it when it does because it's transparent. You know, I was thinking about that. When you can see something that's how high you are, that's if we if, if airplanes were like Wonder Woman's invisible, I wouldn't get in one. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 even though I suffer horribly with vertigo, when we went up the Sears Tower, I actually did go into the glass box. I had oh, my gosh. Taken down like of my you can see my like my sneakers and then the, the buildings underneath. Bless your I was heart. I was OK until a little Japanese girl got in and started jumping around <laughs> in the box. Yes. And that was it. Yes. Was like, no, I'm out. <laughs> Satan. That was Satan got in that box yeah. with you, man. Um, I'll put it this way. Like, we have a big bridge over the Mississippi River right near where I live. And if if the side rails on it were transparent instead of concrete, I would not cross that bridge. It's just because you could see how high up you are. Yeah. And I'm just, yeah. there's no way. So I don't like that at all. But, yeah, it's pretty cool. But, no, oh, my gosh. Um, here's one that you will find as a big Beatles guy. Interesting. Led Zeppelin played to 56,800 people in Tampa, breaking the 1965 record set by the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's a long time for that record to, to stay, though. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it stood for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Secretariat won the Triple Crown. Uh, here's another one interesting for our for our show in terms of government agencies and dudes with guns and stuff. The DEA was founded. The Drug Enforcement Agency was founded. 
Uh, in terms of things like You Only Live Twice, Skylab was launched in 73. So you're still, interesting that you're still coming out of that 60s heyday of NASA, that 60s, early 70s, all the stuff that influenced those early Bond movies, right? The rockets and the missiles from Dr. No all the way through You Only Live Twice and all that. That was still going on with Skylab. Um, let's see. Uh, Evil Knievel's stunt cycle debuted for Christmas toys. I love that toy. It was so awesome. Best the toy wild. ever. <laughs> oh, you wound up the motorcycle and off it went. It was fantastic. Uh, the National Archives here in St. Louis was partially destroyed by fire. My wife was just mentioning that the other day because we were talking about like her grandfather's war military records or something. She says, yeah, they're all gone. They were destroyed by that fire. I'm like, what fire? And then I looked up the thing for this year, and it's like, whoa, there's that fire. It happened in 1973. Ah. So a whole floor of our National Archives burned. Ah. Isn't that crazy? And then the last thing, Pioneer 10 sent back the first close-up pictures of Jupiter. All right. Anything you want to add or throw in before yeah, let we start me add talking? some British stuff to that. Oh, fantastic. So, yes. Uh, it's the year that the Britain joined the European Union. Oh, wow. Okay. When we had, they actually had common sense and joined the European <laughs> Union. For a um, while, they were in the, the, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was two large IRA bombings, uh, oh. one in London and one in Manchester. I remember the Manchester one very well. I was just like, just starting high school around that time. So mm. I rem- in Manchester, so I remember that one very well. Um, you had the Vietnam War. We had the Cod War. That year. <laughs> the what? The Cod War. I, the, you may not know this, but the UK and Iceland actually declared war over fishing rights in 1973. Who um, won? The the UK or the Cod? The Cod, basically. <laughs> so, how did they hold um, the little guns with their fingers? They... Yeah, no, they sent naval frigates out to intercept the uh, Icelandic trawlers. It was, uh, yeah. Um, so let's see. Britain's gone to war with Iceland, the Falkland Islands, Argentina... You know, yeah. It's just not quite the same as Napoleon and, and Hitler anymore. No, not it? quite, is it? No. <laughs> um, the other big thing I remember from that year it was the uh, there was a there was oil crisis, coal shortages, and strikes that year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in the UK, they reduced the national speed limit from seventy to fifty miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, same in the US when they brought it down to fifty-five. Yep. But the other thing is we actually and uh, as a high schooler, I really appreciate this. We went actually they implemented a three-day work week. Oh, wow. In, in 1973 to save energy. Um, so we only went to school for three days a week. Um, <sighs> um, and there were power cuts, and you would always go in and say, oh, I couldn't do my homework because, you know, there was no power or whatever. But uh, <laughs> Maybe an excuse. Like yeah. Um, on a lighter note or a darker note, uh, it's also the year that Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, one of the greatest albums of all time. So exactly. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So th- those are my UK contributions to... 1973, the year that was. We, we here in St. Louis have El Monstro, which is one of the, there's several, but one of the greatest Pink Floyd tribute bands. And they put on, they put on multiple concerts in St. Louis every year. And I go, and it, it, it's so incredible. They do one outside in this big amphitheater near the river. And it's so deluxe that when they get to the part of the wall where the helicopter flies over, they have a helicopter fly over the, over the, uh, the amphitheater. Yeah. It's like that, they, that must cost them a bit. Oh, they, don't, they spare no expense. Yeah, it's really incredible. All right, so um, we've got a, a really good one tonight. A really interesting one. This is one that, um, in fact, I've actually got a couple of clips from uh, from this one on my football soundboard that I use occasionally on the football show. Uh, this is the movie that I correct me if I'm wrong because the the sheriff appears in this one and in. The Man with the Golden Gun. 
But um, I think this is the one, is it not, where we get... Well, we got a cage strong enough to hold an animal like you here. I believe that, I believe it comes from this one. I think so, yeah. I can't say I'm that huge a J.W. Pepper fan, so I can't necessarily... <laughs> I usually like to block him out, not necessarily take notice of his dialogue. What? Well... What are you? Some kind of doomsday machine boy! That is and, definitely from this one. Yes. And to cap it all off... Secret agent? On whose side? So good. All right. <sighs> I have all three of those I've used many, many times on our football show. So, first thing that I always ask is unanswered questions. Uh, and, we usually do the plot and the story. There first. you go. I, when I, I wasn't sure where we fit that in. So, um, okay, right. There we go. I scrolled too far. All right, so talk a little bit about the plot and the story and how you rate it. So, actually, the basic premise... So, what I usually do is think of it in terms of, is this close to a Fleming... If it's meant to... You know, if it's a Fleming title, is it close to the actual original book uh, or story? And then how plausible is it? Um, so, in terms of Fleming, this, the basic premise is there from the novel. Um, you've got a black gangster using a combination of voodoo and fear to manage and distribute illicit goods. In the book, it's smuggled gold coins but he's doing it through a chain of Philly of Soul restaurants. Some of the characters are also there from the, made the transition to the screen, Mr. Big himself, Teehee, Whisper, Solitaire. Um, but several of the most memorable scenes from the novel aren't used here, but actually end up in other movies. Um, notably Felix's shock encounter, um, which of course turns up in a much later movie with a different bond. But um, ooh, ooh, I, know so, one, I know one, the being dragged behind <laughs> the boat ends up in... Being dragged behind the boat. For, yeah, for the keelhole scene. Yeah, for your eyes only. Yeah. For your eyes only. Yeah. Um, so there's that side of it. The plausibility. I actually like adding the dual character aspects of Mr. Big and Kananga being the same person. I thought that was a nice addition, and switching it from smuggling buried tre- uh, treasure and gold mm-hmm. Spanish gold coins to heroin smuggling and distribution. I thought modernized it a bit. So, I, yeah, I actually, in terms of the plot and the story, I like like this one uh, as usual the closer they are to Fleming the more I like him so I gave this one an 8 out of 10 for the plot and the story yeah I agree I gave it an 8 as well I noted that it does get a little weird around the edges it's but that's one of the things I like about it this is this is a this is a Bond movie that breaks the mold in a lot of ways it does some things that none of the other Bond movies do and um, you know from all the voodoo stuff to the touches of the supernatural you know the idea that Solitaire's tarot card reading power actually does work up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it. They never say that it was a gimmick or anything. Basically, she had this magical power in the movie until she slept with Bond and it went away. That's pretty much accepted by everybody is what actually happened. So that's very unusual for a Bond movie to get into kind of the magical like that. And then all the way to the very end where. Um, where uh, Baron Samity is on the front of the train laughing like he doesn't die like all the other villains always do. And that creepy ending like that always scared me to death as a kid. So I like that this movie has some weird areas. I like that it goes outside the box a little bit. Um, but I also like that when you get down to the actual plot that you were talking about with the drug dealing and the guy with two identities, that's pretty easy to understand, right? We've talked about Bond movies where you have to sit down with an abacus and a and a calculator to figure out the plot. This one, once you kind of figure out Mr. Big Kananga, you got it. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty easy to understand, but that doesn't make it not as good. It it just means you can follow it pretty, you know, pretty clearly. So all that together to me, I mean, 
this to me really is one of the more exceptional movies in the entire series. I find it very interesting. It's, you mentioned the supernatural. I, I think it's the closest any of the Bonds have got to skirting with the horror genre. Yes. Well. Um, and, you know, if, if you're going to say, you know, did, has there ever been a, a Bond-related horror movie? I think this is it. Um, yeah. For several of the reasons that you just mentioned, yeah. Isn't it interesting that, that Roger Moore's Bond begins the 70s with a supernatural horror type thing and ends the 70s with the most technological scientific science fictional of all the bond movies yeah that's true i hadn't thought of it that way kind of runs the gamut there yeah yeah and and you and i have talked before about how if his tenure had ended the way they tended to moonraker would have probably been his last one and you'd have gotten because because for your eyes only is kind of a very good starting over with a new bond type of movie and so Roger Moore would have would have spanned the '70s mostly, and would have had both the really creepy supernatural on one end and the technological on the other. I just think that's pretty interesting, pretty cool. Yeah, and I think it was also the period where the Bond movies were playing with different genres before Bond became a genre of its own, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and I think, so. I think this is a great example of it. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point too, because what was the last Bond movie? that wasn't just Bond genre. Because all the Daniel Craigs were just Bond doing Bond stuff. There was no, there wasn't like the voodoo Daniel Craig Bond. There wasn't like the, you know, Daniel Craig goes into space Bond movie. What, what was it? I mean, surely it wasn't Moonraker. Was it, um, uh, the Pierce Brosnans were all kind of Bond doing Bond stuff. They didn't really have a genre either. They were all very spy-ish, kind of, you know, secret agent. Yeah, they were a bit more technique, sort of techno thriller yeah, type yeah. stuff. So, uh, and I mean, in the, the, the two, um, I can't ever pull his name Timothy out. Timothy Dalton once. Yeah, the two Daltons were both very, um, they were just like secret agent action movies. We talked about that. Yeah, you could, I suppose you could say License to Kill was sort of contemporary true crime drug yes. run, running type stuff. But yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think that's as close as we get as License to Kill. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep, because yeah, before that you had to pretty much go all the way back into Roger Moore's, and and they're yeah, they are all very distinct in that way. That is, I mean, that is one thing to say about the Roger Moore movies, right? You've got you got the voodoo horror movie, then you get like the kung fu movie, and yeah. then you then you get the Russian spy and you know underwater, and then you get the outer space. So they're all very yeah. much and their own. Then you get the revenge movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's cool. All right. Uh, unanswered questions. Do you have any unanswered questions that linger behind after watching this again? Uh, yeah. Um, I got them scattered through. and they, they come down to a lot of the usual things, like why did the bad guys make themselves so obvious? Yeah. Like, you know, they attacked Bond as soon as he got off the plane in New York. Why? They, they didn't always, need to. They always do that. It's how the they villains always, always go yeah. wrong. Yeah. Yes. You know, um, you know, when they took him out the back of the alley, why did they walk him down the alley? Why didn't they just, you know... Okay. Though I was going to ask you that, those guys never seemed to me like they had any intention of actually killing him. I no. never, I never got the sense from those two guys that they were actually going to do anything but like kick him in the butt and send him on his way. Right? That's what it felt yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. There was no sense of menace there at all. So. No, not a bit. Okay. So my other, my other one is a real geeky um, continuity thing, but it bugs the hell out of me. Why did Can, Can Angus Carr in New York have Texas plates? <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but the one he drives out of the voodoo shop, 
the the brown. Oh yeah, car. they park. Yeah, it, yeah. Has, yeah. There's this close up shot of the license plate, and it's Texas license plates. And I'm like, they're in New York. Why does this car? Wow. Maybe it's a rental. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but it's just like I don't know why it just bugs me. Um, it, well, pimp mobiles uh, are us. We're all out of cars. We had to go yeah, to Texas. Yeah, cars yeah, I really. guess so. Yeah. Um, watching it again last night reminded me a couple of things. The who planted the tar? The, this is the one that really bugs me. Who planted the tarot card that warned Bond about Rosie Carver? At no point does anybody own up to doing that. That's true. And I, I've never figured out whose benefit it was to warn Bond that she was a double agent. Nobody within the plot benefited from revealing well, her tr- All right. Well, I had two questions about that, too, to, 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 to kind of tag on with yours. One is, he said that the card was upside down is how he knew it was a warning yeah, or whatever, yeah. right? How could he if, he, if he received it, how did he know it was upside down? Well, it was pinned to a note, so Pin, maybe... Uh, so, okay, all right, I'll, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. That's fine. It's not, uh, not unanswered anymore. We've answered it. She changed sides so many times in 10 minutes, I couldn't keep track of who I, whether I was supposed to be. And it's like every five seconds, she's, oh, you know, you're somebody to be suspicious of. Oh, no, you're working with me. Wait, now I'm suspicious of you again. Oh, no, you're working with me. She kept flip-flopping back and forth, and I just got tired of it. I was like, whatever, man. You know, yeah. but, because it's, it's when she turned out to be, when he said that, I'm like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> every time he turns around, he's like, He's suspicious of her or something. I didn't. Uh, and if she was she working for Kananga, was that the, what I was supposed to understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was she doing, leading him through the jungle? Then I think she was meant to lead him into the area where the machine gun things were, but she got shot instead of Bond. I gotta say, but they sh- but they shot her on purpose. Yeah, because they he said she was about to tell him some information. Information. Yeah. Well, then don't send her to meet with him. <laughs> Just. And she seemed unreliable both as a CIA agent and as a yeah. double agent. I yeah. felt yeah. she I felt like she was an albatross for whichever side ended up claiming her. Yeah. It's like both sides are saying, No, you, you guys can have her. It's all right. You 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 guys keep her. She's on your side now. We're we're good. We're we're good over here. Oh no, 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 you take her. All right. My unanswered question was what did Bond do in Rome besides the girl in the closet? Hey ho. Because mm-hmm. there's something he was up to some mission in Rome, right? And he brought her back with him. Yeah, that's but one we, of those untold adventures that uh, they hint at occasionally in the movies. If only I M guess. had been with him. We know M wasn't because he had to report about it. But it could have been one of those great adventures where Bond and M are running around some foreign city getting in trouble. Yeah, which that's they then all. deny later on. Which they then <laughs> deny. That's right. That's the continuity up. I love it. I love it. All right. Let's talk about location so what locations did we have we know we had new york city yep and new orleans at some point yep but uh we got new york new orleans and san monique which is jamaica i was gonna say filmed in jamaica but the thing i liked about the jamaican location is in the first 15 years of these movies whatever we got a lot of caribbean right we've talked about yeah and that's fine it's cool um but this is the first time with possible exception of some of Dr. No, just a little bit of Dr. No, this is the first time we got kind of like a menacing, creepy Caribbean rather than a sunny, beachy, right, vacation-y Caribbean. Yeah, which is, I wonder, 
if that was one of the reasons that they gave it a fictional name, like the Jamaican tourist board didn't like you doing the and the was it was it not supposed to be Haiti or well, Haiti? Yeah, that was I, my I mean, thought. Yeah, I guess so. I, I'm trying to remember in the book. I think it maybe it was, but uh, yeah. I mean, he's basically like Papa Doc Duvalier or whatever, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was my thinking. So, yeah, okay. But this is also the first time that you do get a fictional country. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, in the movies anyway. So I want to ask. Loca- yeah. Go ahead. Go on. I was going to say the other location uh, we see is Bond's apartment. Oh, I'm getting to that. But yes, you're right. We did actually. <laughs> yeah, there's. I don't. I've gotten to where I don't even mention London unless we spend a lot of time there. So, right. uh, but yeah, I've got something to say about Bond's apartment in a minute. We've okay, talked about I'll leave that it. I'll leave it till we get there. Um, yeah. So for me, New York. I mean, as a you know kid of what I was around, you know. 13 at this time, 12, 13, as a car car guy, fun to see New York in the 70s, um, and the big American cars. I loved seeing the big American cars when I so it was very well. Um, I was actually lucky enough to, to visit the voodoo shop last year when I was in New York. Yeah. Um, it's now a hairdresser's, but it's still very, very recognizable. Wow. You can still walk down that street and instantly recognize which store it is, and the entrance to the garage, and that is still there. Um, you, it's not changed at all. Um, and then we get New Orleans again. I was lucky enough to be in New Orleans last year, um, so did went down. Um, and that is hardly changed at all. You can stand against Sider's lamppost, look across the street, and the Filio Sol, um, it's a boutique now, but you can, again, recognize it instantly because of the three-arched windows and stuff. Um, and you can walk those streets. Um, so, again, all highly, highly recognizable. I think this is probably one of the most visitable combination of bond locations that yeah. easily visitable yeah. uh, combination of bond locations in any single movie so uh, i really liked it for that um and it's again you know seeing this as a young kid in the uk in rainy manchester um this was just just blew me away with the with the locations when i saw it and i think they stand up well um so i, I actually get the locations a nine out of ten for me so. this is one of the more United States-centric Bond movies in terms of location. Other mm-hmm. than the Caribbean island, a lot of this movie is in the United States. I guess Goldfinger's kind of like that, too. Yeah, Goldfinger and Diamonds are the other two. Yeah, yeah, yeah Diamonds, that's right. And I, th- what I was going to ask you was, just watching this movie, unless you're paying super close attention, when they transitioned from New York City to New Orleans in the 70s, honestly, it's hard to tell much difference to me. I mean, when you get the long shots, yeah, and you see the bridges and all that and the towers, but when you're just like downtown inside the buildings and between the buildings and everything, I couldn't tell if they were in New York or or New Orleans, honestly, a lot of the time. And by the way, man, you know that alley that they took Bond down? We were just talking about the two guys were going to supposed to shoot him. That looked like it was in Beirut. I'm like, (laughs) where in the United States looks like they just finished World War II? That looked like a bombed out. That looked like a scene from the Blitz in London. You know, it didn't look like just some random street. Yeah, it, it did look like a bomb site. You're right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it looked horrible. It looked like Afghanistan or something. It didn't look like I couldn't believe it. And I don't think you see quite as much of that anymore. The one thing that our younger uh, Bond fan friends out there might not realize is the '70s were notoriously a very cheap-looking decade. I've always said everything in this. This was the decade of my childhood. And I, I, you know, everything in the '70s to me just looked cheap. Everything was plastic and brittle and cheaply thrown together, and everything just looked crappy. And that's the way I think of the '70s. So it didn't surprise me. And um, 
as we're recording this in 2023, this is the 50th anniversary of this movie. I, we we failed, failed to notice that. Yeah. To note, to, to, oh, yeah, to mention it is. Yeah. You're right. 50th anniversary of this movie. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. So I, my location grade, I gave a five. Again, just because... You know, it, 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 just because you know, watch this is this is probably the Bond movie I've seen the most. This one and Diamonds Are Forever are up there because I've mentioned plenty of times before that these were the two that ABC used to show every Sunday night back and they'd alternate these two constantly, and I'd see them over and over. But um, you know, New York City, I was seeing in every TV show that was on the air back then. Every cop show was New York City. Every comic book was New York City. You know. And New Orleans was kind of interesting, but again, you don't see a lot of New Orleans that couldn't just be another alley in New York City, honestly. So that that's why I was referring to that is when you see New Orleans in this movie, other than the the funeral march scene, it just doesn't really seem like New Orleans that much to me. You don't in fact, the um the scene in Moonraker at the what the 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 Mardi Gras type parade thing, the junkyard yeah. or whatever, that seems way more like New Orleans to me, and it wasn't even in New Orleans. You know, you need to me, you need those big drunken crowds in the streets to uh, really to really seem like New Orleans to me. That's interesting because that's actually the part of New Orleans I hate whenever I go there. It's Bourbon <laughs> oh, Street and all that stuff. No, I'm um, not saying the French, I like I love it, the but... French. I love the French Quarter, but I like getting in the French Quarter and getting up early in the morning and going in while it's quiet and. <laughs> That area where the fillet of soul stuff is is away, is off the tourist beaten track. So I actually know, and I quite often eat in that area. So I know it's weird, but I actually know those particular streets really well. Okay. So when I see them, for me, it really resonates. That's the New Orleans I like. There you go. So yeah. that's yeah. yeah, good deal. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's just from where you're coming from and and how you look at yep. it for sure. No doubt yep. about it. But I do, I, I do like that we get the Caribbean at the end, and I love. And I was going to mention when we get to the music that the music I think goes really well with the island locations when we get to that, which is something that stands out to me. Uh, but we'll get to that next up. The main villains, the uh, the boss villain. What do you? How do you rank and evaluate old uh, Yafet Kato? I thought Yafet Kato was excellent. Um, his ability to switch from quiet menacing to explosive violence in just a flick. Um, a blink of an eye, I thought, and that I like the villains that are polite, like yeah. Drax, and yes. like you know, Mister Big, uh, not Mister Big, but when he's Kananga, just that quiet menace. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just the I can't even remember the line, but when he basically orders Bond's death and just puts the phone down, yeah. you know, and then just picks up whatever memo he is he's reading. It's like you know, it's just 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 something ticked off the to do list today, you know. Yep. Um, I, I really like that. Um, I thought his turn of Mr. Big was good up to a point when you look at it from today's point of view. And I think I've read this in interviews with him. It's too stereotyped. It's, you know, um, and I know it's the period of black exploitation movies and stuff, but it does come over as a bit stereotypical. Um, and unfortunately, I think his whole, his whole story arc was undermined by the stupid death scene. Yes. Um, so for that reason, I gave him a, a se seven out of ten. I, again, I think you know the fight, the knife fight. If they'd have set up earlier on that he had skills with a knife, yeah, that would it, it would have had a better pay payoff. Um, but the ends, everything in that end scene seemed to be totally out of character with everything that had happened up until that point. Um, so I say, unfortunately, I think that sort of undermined him. I, I think it was a great performance by Effort Kodo, but. Um, say unfortunately undermined at the end so i gave him a seven out of ten yeah i um 
I love the dual identities, and I love that he is so. I love that there's like two or three. There's like two or three moments in the movie that I noted where he's so erudite, right? He's very punctilious with his pronunciation, and he's late, when he's Kananga, right? When he's the when he's the like the UN ambassador or prime minister or whatever his position is in the country, and he, you know, he's like, take a letter. We're going to now speak of the peace efforts by my country, and you know, he's talking like that. And then he, like you say, he flips a switch and he, bec- and he becomes, uh, names this for tombstones, take this honky out and waste him. You know, that, that he can do both of those things so well within, you know, a turn on a dime and do them is really fascinating to me. And I, I really enjoy that. And um, I, I also like, and this is kind of goes back to the unanswered questions. I've still not completely understood why they go into the government offices or whatever dressed nicely and then they all immediately start changing clothes into their like pimp hustler, yeah, yeah, outfits and everything. I, it, it, it's wonderful. It's colorful. It's really cool, and it shows their dual identities that they're both like a a diplomatic staff and um, black exploitation drug pushers. You know, that's that's cool. I just don't fully understand it, but I don't have to understand it. <laughs> It just looks cool. It does, yeah. Well, so, I, I, I guess it's also an easy visual reference for the audience as to, like, okay, we're being legitimate now, now we're being the gangsters. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's an easy, you know, easy visual cue to the different roles they're playing, I guess. And that great thing where he starts the speech and then turns on the tape recorder, the tape yeah. player. So they think he's still there. In fact, Felix totally buys it because Felix says he's in there knitting a flag. Flag, yeah. It's a great line from Felix. That's awesome. I um, do wonder, though, if there's an FBI agent like an hour later just has the tape go. Yeah. At the end, you know. Well, that's one of those things where you use a tape because if you used a record, it would be like, at the end of my, at the end of my, at the end of my, at the end of my. They'd be like, man, Kananga is like having a, having a nervous breakdown in there. Call the call the ambulance. <laughs> um, I gave uh, Yafet Kato an eight. Um, I do agree with you about his death scene and the ending and everything. And you make a persuasive case that they should have set up the knife skills thing better. Um, but I, I still got to give him a high number just because he's such a good main villain. And it doesn't hurt that he has a great supporting cast. So... Let us transition on over then to the supporting villains or the hench people, the henchmen, and uh, your thoughts on Teehee and Whisper and that whole uh, Baron Samaday and that whole crowd, the unnamed snake handler guy. There's just a whole crowd. Uh, uh, what's her name? The uh, Rosie. There's just like he's got a potpourri uh-huh. of, uh, of hench people. I must admit, I sometimes. Even now, sometimes get Teehee and Baron Samadhi mixed up uh, when I'm watching it. I, I, I think they were each individually good, but I think they diluted each other's mm. presence on screen. Uh, I'm not sure why you needed both of them to do fairly similar roles at different points in the movie. Um, so I, I, I think they should have picked one and focused on them. I think Teehee was fun, but I think they could have built up his character a bit more. Um, I think he was like fun in you know in the crocodile thing when he was talking about how his arm got chewed off and things like that. But otherwise, I'd, yeah. Um, and I think the Baron, I don't think they should have taken him out of costume. I think you should have only seen him in costume, so you were never sure if he was actually this mysterious character or not. 
I think having him show up in normal, even though he was seven foot tall, but having him show up in normal <laughs> clothes sort of robbed him of a bit of that mystique, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think that Whisper, I think, was completely underutilized, particularly as his soft voice was part of the payoff <laughs> in the final scene. Oh, so um, good. He's so funny. Um, and they never explain why he spoke softly. They did in the book. Okay. So in the book, he basically had tuberculosis, um, mm. which left him with only part of a lung, which is why he spoke softly oh. and, and quietly. So I think they could have, again, a bit like with the knife fight and other things. I think one of my growing under things with this movie each time I watch it is there's things that they don't set up right. that pay off later on. And I think there was more things they should have set up. Um, and it was interesting what when not watching it last night, but last time we watched it, Jill um, actually made a comment about how could Mr. Big afford to pay all these people to do all the stuff? Um, and in the book, he basically talks about the fact that he wrote rules through fear. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, it's actually Mr. Big is Baron Samadhi. They think Mr. Big is actually the zombie of Baron Samadhi and that he'll come and get them. Oh, wow. So he, yeah, rules, okay. yeah. he rules through fear. Um, and Jill was like, why didn't they do that in the movie? They should have established it. And I, I think they, the only one they really established that is with Rosie. And I think they could have done it with the other, the other folks because, you know, in the book, there's several instances where people do stuff. They're not comfortable doing it, but their fear of him outweighs mm. their moral compass. Right. And none of that came over in the movie's henchmen, even though they had a good group of them. To me, just came over more as muscle for hire rather than they were doing it because there was some sort of spiritual or religious connection to Baron Samadhi or Mr. Big or whatever. So, um, so I, I, ups and downs for me. So I sort of gave it middle, middle ranking. I gave the, sort of the henchmen a five out of 10. Wow. I think, I think they could have done a lot better with them. I think there was great potential there. I just don't think it was realized. Allow me to rebut. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> So I think this is the strongest and best collection of evil henchmen in the entire series ever. I think that they are colorful. I don't mean that in a <laughs> blatant way. I know I mean, what you mean, yes. Yeah, they are because they're all different is what I mean. They're all, yes, they're all, you know, African-American or whatever. That's fine. But they're all different in that they each have kind of their own thing. Whisper has the voice thing and he's kind of pudgy. Baron Samity has the laugh and the evil eye, and he's big and menacing and scary. Uh, when and I agree with you when um, that it was it it did it did affect his character for him to come out in that scene with the uh, when when um, Solitaire is there and there and he comes out and takes his hat off and drops on the table and everything. But he's so menacing that when he does that, even as a regular guy, not a spiritual force, when he comes out and drops the hat, that scared me to death. I mean, I thought that was very, very effective. And, and I got more to say about that in just a second. But um, I thought each one of them has their own thing. Each one of them is very distinct. I agree they don't set any one of them up enough. I think we needed more backstory and depth. And I think if you do that, then you've got too many. But I think because they didn't ever go that deep in any of them, having a whole smorgasbord, like a buffet of them, actually worked out good. Because if you're not going to go in depth, you could end up with like Stamper in 
you know, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, where you only have the one flunky, well, for the most part, and you never know anything about him. If I'm going to never know anything about the flunkies, I'd like a bunch of flunkies, so at least I get a variety and some, and, and some colorfulness as opposed to just one boring dude, right? Now, um, the, 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 the I'll, I'll lose my train of thought on that one, but let me, let, me, let me circle back around. So I appreciate that we get just enough out of each of them to make them interesting, to make them different from one another, and to make them menacing. And again, this, this crew, when I was a little kid especially, scared me to death. And, and I like, there's another type of variety about them. Some of them are what I would say are tough scary. And tough scary would be like Odd Job or Jaws, okay? And some of them are creepy scary, like Baron Samity, which is like more of just kind of like they're weird and kind of spooky and scary as opposed to just a big menace, big physical threat, you know. And so you get that variety. And I like how, in some ways, that reflects the two sides of personality that Kananga is manifesting, right? Because when he's Kananga, he's got his physical threat guys. And when he's Mr. Big, he's got his spooky uh, Caribbean island guys. And they're kind of the same and kind of different. So I don't know. I don't want to just be totally rationalizing um, why I think they're really cool. I just think they're really cool. I think they're the best henchmen in the entire series. I give them a 10. I don't disagree with anything that you just said. <laughs> but I also cool. think they're underdeveloped and could have been much, much better. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, oh, that was the other thing I was going to say is I feel like in a lot of the movies in the 70s in particular, and it may be other years too, but a lot of the movies in the 70s and the Roger Moore era in particular – they, the movie producers and director and writers and everything, they did a number of things just because they were cool and not because they were always logical. And so, you know, you said they could have combined Baron Samity and Teehee. I'm so glad they didn't, though, because they brought very different things, in my opinion, to the table. And I wouldn't want to lose either one of those things, right? I like the idea that Teehee is purely physical. He's just a menacing, evil guy. And I like that Baron Samity has this whole supernatural, spooky angle to him. And they're, they give you two different angles of attack. I really like that a lot. And, and again, it, it may not be logical or whatever. And it may have, you know, but that, but they did a lot of stuff in these movies that wasn't logical, but just looked cool or seemed cool. Yeah, I, I'm thinking back to the Teehee, Dr. Byron Samady thing. I think for me, if they'd have focused on Teehee as being, like you said, the physical henchmen when they were in New York and New Orleans or whatever, and then Baron Samady, you only ever saw him in Samani. Yeah. And he was the spiritual, ghostly, whatever threat. I think yeah. would, I would have been happier with that. So. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. Sure, I like it. Um, all right, here's your favorite <laughs> your favorite category that I added on uh, toward the end recently. Would this movie be better? And your answer is always no, of course, because you're no fun. <laughs> but would this movie be better with Jaws or Odd Job in it? And if so, which one? I would say no, but I think if they'd have made Teehee more of an Odd Job type. Okay character okay. yes that might have worked better yeah. you know the answer as far as Jaws concerned is always going to be no <laughs> it's always but, no um, dang it <laughs> well my answer to this one is not really odd job you make a good case you've convinced me on odd job I was going to say completely no on odd job because I don't think he fits into this movie he's you know 
but, but you're right. If there's anybody in the cast that Odd Job kind of corresponds with, it would be Teehee. I agree. And so, yeah, you could do something there. You're right. I was going to say, though, Jaws fits into this team of villains pretty well because he's just another one with a weird gimmick, which is interesting, right? Because originally the Bond thing was that the main villain had the gimmick. But now we're to the point where each of the henchmen has a gimmick. And Jaws would, I think Jaws would just, I could see Jaws sitting in the back of one of those big pimp mobiles with Teehee and Whisper and all them. I could totally see him hanging out with them. But I wouldn't want it because I think he would distract from them and they are too good to water down any further. There, there's enough of them. Yeah. I like that there's a bunch, but there's enough. Yeah. yeah all right. I agree. So yeah. we're keeping Jaws out. You're happy, right? Yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Um, the Bond girls, Alan. Oh, well, we start off with uh, Miss Caruso, the lovely, vivacious Maddie Smith. I always love seeing Maddie Smith on screen. So, yeah. Um, she was great. Um, we talked a bit about Rosie Carver. Um, <laughs> Rosie. Um, I like the idea of a gullible, incompetent agent. I think it's a fun one, but here it was too forced. And as you said, I, I, my note is if she's that bumbling, I doubt she'd have got into the CIA in the first place or even that Kananga would have wanted her on his team. So I pretty much made the same remark that you did. Yeah. Um, having said that, Gloria Hendry was lucky enough to meet her at the IFF uh, dinner in the event last year. And she's lovely. And she actually, lovely lady, quite often likes and comments stuff on my James Bond Lexicon Instagram account. So I will oh, nice. give her props for that. Um, she actually, and she's an excellent singer. If you ever hear her sing, uh, she does her own show of Bond themes and Bond move, uh, Bond she's, songs. She seemed delightful uh, as a person. Just the character. She's a lovely, the lovely yeah. person. But yeah. Um, then we have Solitaire, Jane Seymour, gorgeous-looking young lady. At that point, what was she? Just twenty-two at that point, half Roger's age. Um, <laughs> but this is very early in her career, and it shows. To be honest, I think her acting is a little wooden at times, and I didn't really get any chemistry between her and Roger, her and Roger. Um, and I have real problems with the character. In the book, Solitaire is a strong, independent woman um, who you basically uses Bond as a vehicle to get out from Kananga's control. Not Kananga, mm. Mr. Big's control in the mm-hmm. book. Sorry, there is no Kananga in the book. Same. It's just Mr. Yeah. Big. Right. But, but she uses Bond. She manipulates Bond. She uses him to get out of, out of uh, Mr. Big's control. That's interesting. And here, and here she's, just, she's just a pretty ornament. She's literally a possession that gets passed from yeah. Kananga bond and uh, it's very uncomfortable um so i'm afraid partly because of that um i gave the the, the ladies um with that and rosie's irritating stuff i, I gave the the ladies sort of five out of ten i don't so yes i know jane seymour is beautiful to look at but that didn't carry it for me sorry allow me once again to rebut <laughs> <laughs> feel free no. sir I did like the, the, the Italian agent at the beginning. She was very entertaining and fun. And, and by the way, um, I, I, don't, I, had, I had a note about this somewhere, but, oh, it's in the pre-credit sequence. So, uh, no, it's not. Huh. Oh, it's in the what stage the best worst. Okay, we'll get to that. Um, no, I, as much as Rosie tries to drag things down, nobody can drag Jane Seymour down. Just from a standpoint of the Bond girl in this movie, um, and I think when we did the Bond girl draft a couple of months ago, I just I pulled Solitaire first overall overall pick. I just grabbed her immediately because I'm like, she's not necessarily my favorite Bond girl, but I felt like she's the one that would be the 
first off the board, whoever had the first pick, and I, I was able to get her on my team. Um, I, I gave the Bond girls in this movie a 10 just because good Lord Jane Seymour. And the fact that she goes on to be introduced to television five years later as, on Battlestar Galactica doesn't hurt either because she becomes uh, Apollo's wife. But um, All right, She goes on to have an awesome career, great career. Yes. And she's still a beautiful-looking woman. Even today, yes. 50 yeah. years later. So, yeah, uh, no, no, no argument on that score. Uh, it's just the character of Solitaire. And again, maybe because it is so different from Solitaire in the book. Right. Um, no, and, um, and, and the way you describe that does to me sound more appealing. I agree, for sure. But I, I just love the fact that she's, she's interesting. She's the most supernatural of all the Bond girls, too, as we were talking about, that she apparently had these powers. That's true. Uh, and like you said, I do like the fact that they they don't acknowledge it as a trick. You're never you're never quite yeah. sure if it's a trick yeah. or it, it is something that actually works. So yeah, I totally get that. All right, the Bond allies, and um, we did get a couple. Yes, we did. Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to start my Bond allies out by giving a shout out to an ally we don't talk about often enough, Miss Moneypenny. Oh yes, yes. Because I love the way she's only on screen for, I don't know, a minute, maybe two minutes max. Um, but I love the way that she covers for Bond in his apartment with Miss Caruso. That's um, what I was going to mention. So you go ahead and mention that now and we'll go strike that Yeah, I just, the, the way that she, she sort of manipulates M to stop him discovering Miss Caruso in the yes. cabinet. Um, and just that, you know, as she's walking out, she just throws that, to, or should it be, ciao, Bella, <laughs> um, on her way out. Um, I thought it was great. Um, probably one of her shortest appearances in a Bond movie, yeah. but one of her best ones, I think. Well, it's that we know how she feels, and yet she's such a good sport. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Doing that, covering for him is nice enough, but covering for him when we already know how she feels about him just makes it times 10. Yeah. Just shows yeah. how decent and good and kind she can be. There was not a vindictive... I mean, you know, and I have to say, you, you said her best appearance. She makes a couple of very subtle facial expressions during those scenes. Yeah, she does. Yeah, it's brilliantly acted. She, she's not normally asked to do that. No. But she makes the kind of like realization, upset, regret, acceptance, determination How to help him, all within the space of like bang, bang, bang. And you can see every bit of it on her face. And calculating where people need to be in the room and where she needs to yes. stand to block. Oh, yeah, um, you can you know, see it. Yeah, she, I mean, she does a, a nice, you know, football-type blocking of the pass <laughs> there when yes. M's heading for the cabinet, and she's like, no, 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 I'll, you know. So, you know, nice blocking move. Yeah, Absolutely. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, that, yeah, I had that down for a thing that's aged the best, is, is, is that it's one of the best. And I'm glad, I, I want to mention, since you mentioned that, um, I'd forgotten that we don't get a scene in the office. No. In fact, so, and this is Roger Moore's first appearance, so presumably we get one in The Man with the Golden Gun, and if we do, that's the first time Roger Moore uh, goes into him's office on screen. Yeah, it's in Man with the Golden Gun, yeah. There you go. I didn't thought, but wait, but it's on the boat, isn't it? It's not in London. Or is no, it's it, in the, no, it's in London. It starts in London, because he sees him later in Money Penny on the boat, upside down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, but it starts in... It starts in London. Okay, so that... Yeah. I was going to say, if, if we only saw him on the boat in Hong Kong, then, gosh, we're all the way to 
77 before he goes in the office. But okay, that's that's interesting. All right. But I'd forgotten uh, that that's the only time he sees him and Moneypenny in this movie is in his apartment. Yeah. Yeah, it's just okay. a very brief scene, yeah. Yeah. Um, other ally, Felix, obviously. David Hedison is my favorite Felix. Um, but I think, I mean, Felix doesn't do much here, really. Um, he's basically on the phone for most of it. <laughs> he um, is. Uh, even carrying around that early Motorola mobile phone that he doesn't use. Yeah. A nice bit of product placement, but it doesn't actually work. Um, I would have loved that one-sided conversation he has to Mr. Bleeker is great. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know how much of that was just David Hedison ad-libbing or whether it was scripted, but it's, it's brilliant because clearly there's probably nobody on the other end of the phone, so it was just, mm-hmm. just awesome. Um, but I think most of that comes from when they are on screen is the chemistry between David Hedison and Roger Moore. They're already good friends. They did a couple of episodes of The Saint together. They, they know each other. Um, I think it comes from that. So Felix, I think it's great to see him, but he doesn't actually do that much. Um, yeah. And then, of course, I don't know whether he's an ally or what, but you, you mentioned him earlier, J.W. Pepper. Um, <laughs> for me, a total downer of this movie, totally unnecessary distraction, ill-advised attempt at comedy, comic relief. Yes. I hate him with a passion. So, unfortunately, J.W. dragged Moneypenny and Felix down to a 5 out of 10. Um, mm. I tell you, if Moneypenny and Felix hadn't been in there, if it had just been J.W., it probably would have been a 1 or a 0. So, <laughs> a 0. The first zero ever. Yeah. Yeah, he does. He is the anchor, the lead weight around the neck of this movie. Um, I just try to ignore him because um, it's so good around him. Um, and then, of course, they bring him back just to make the man with the golden gun even worse. But, um, yeah, and, and it is funny that you don't get that many. Well, I think you get more Felixes in the movies than we realize, but you still kind of treasure each moment that he gets to do anything, and he doesn't really get to do very much in this one. But there have been some where he just sits in a car reading a newspaper, basically. So you know, it's it's eh, it's a it's a it's kind of an average Felix showing up, punching the clock, getting his paycheck. Um, and I am glad he's the one that they chose to bring back in License to Kill because yeah, they had several choices and. He's he, he's like kind of the everyman Felix, I thought. You know, he's not the handsome one like Jack Lord, and he's not the old crotchety one like the dude from the next one and all. I mean, there've been a variety of Felixes over the years, and he's just kind of like the average guy. When I thought, yeah, for me, Felix is either him or Jeffrey Wright. Those are the only yeah. two that stand out for me. So. That's that's true. I still like uh, Lord, but we only had him the one time, and obviously. Um, so you didn't mention Strutter. You're right, I didn't. What do you think about Strutter? That he lent on the wrong lamppost. <laughs> he did. I, I mean, did he do much other than get killed? Not much. No. Well, did he did he show up and rescue Bond in the in the Beirut alley, the Afghanistan alley, or was that my or did he? Yeah, buy? he did. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, Bond kind of was busting loose, and then he showed up and pulled a gun on him at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the classic Bond's allies first point a gun at him and then team up with him. That yeah. It's every yeah. freaking bomb yeah. Movie. So yeah, he did. Yeah, and he sort of gave the running commentary, yeah. following in, into Harlem and stuff. So yeah, you, and that's why I wanted to mention Strutter. Um, by the way, I gave the Bond Allies this movie a seven. I think my number is going to be a lot higher on aggregate at the end than yours. I gave the Bond Allies a seven mainly because you got the best, the kind of the universally regarded best Felix, and that gives it a couple extra points for me. Um, and you do get the good thing from Money Penny, the good turn. Um, but the thing about Strutter, when we did our review of this movie uh, a couple of years ago, I was pointing out to you that one thing that, uh, that bothered me about it 
was was during that part of the movie as Bond is traveling through town, there are all these different people, all African Americans, which feeds into the whole black exploitation aspect of it, that were pulling phones and radios out of their rear end to call into somebody. And I said, I don't like how it makes it seem like every random person in this part of town all works for Mr. Big. But when I watched it this time, I noted that one of the people was Strutter and that one of the people reporting in was calling him. So what you actually have, and I had not put this together until now, what you actually have in that scene is half of the New York City is calling in to Mr. Big and half is calling into the CIA. Yeah, you've got two parallel conversations, but they cut between them in yes. a way that makes it seem like it's one continuous conversation. Yes. Yes, yes. It's very cleverly done. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it fooled me up until now. This is the first time I've watched it that I've realized that both the good guys and the bad guys are doing the exact same thing in intercutting scenes. Up until now, yeah. I thought it was all the bad guys. And it oh, just okay. bothered me that every single black person they showed in New York City was calling up the bad guy to, to rat out Bond. But they weren't. Some of them were no. talking to the CIA, and some of them were helping him, and they didn't know it. Although it is funny when they say, "How you know, you can't miss him. It's a cue ball, like following a cue ball. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty funny. Um, and by the way, I, we didn't mention that Felix does get one of the greatest lines in the entire history of the series, which is, give me a make on a white pimp mobile. You just, I mean, that, <laughs> I think that's Jared's favorite line in the entire series, by the way. That's a, that's a line just Jared loves. All right, so there we go. So I gave the Bond allies a seven. All right, let's get to the vehicles. One of your favorite things in all the Bond movies, Alan, the vehicles. What do you think about them? Well, actually, just before we get into the vehicles, I'm going to follow up on that. So I can say, when I first saw oh. this, I was like 13-year-old kid in the north of England and stuff. I thought a Pimpmobile was actually a make of car. <laughs> it should be. I have no idea. It should be. It's yeah. totally a Ford Pimpmobile, new for yeah. 1973. <laughs> <laughs> so, I um, all right, the vehicles. For me, the star of this has to be the Glastron speedboats. Yes. For the bio uh, boat chase. Um, yes. I actually only recently found out that uh, at the time, in the early 70s, Glastron was actually based here in Austin. The boats were actually built here in Austin. Oh, cool. Um, so, uh, anyway, I'm going to do my IFF plug. So, we have the world record holding jump boat, which you actually saw at uh, the Peterson um, yep. last year. Um, and we have the boat that ends up in the swimming pool. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, I, um, so, those are cool. Um, got to hang out a lot in the swimming pool boat that we tend to, that tends to be a, a place that when we're up there working that we go and sit and have a break sitting in there, so have a have a cup of coffee or whatever. Sat in that boat, so I've sat in that boat a lot. Um, like I said earlier, I loved seeing the American cars in the NYC shots. Um, they were great, um, and I always loved the bus, the chop top bus, low oh, bridge. Yeah. I forget about sequence. the bus. Uh, always enjoyed that, um, partly because it's one of the few stunts that Roger Moore actually participated in because he could actually drive a bus. Um, so oh, okay, nice. Um, and again, it was fun to again the end sequence. It was fun to see a monorail in the villain's lair, but it never moved. I know. I made a note of that. It never goes anywhere. Yeah, because she says, so, "How are we going to get out of here?" He says, "We'll take the little train," and then they don't right. ever show it. Yeah, yeah. So it looked like a static prop. I don't get that. And this is not a vehicle per se, but I will want to give a shout out. I love the whole Bond's travel across the, the ocean sequence with the narration by Solitaire. At the card reading, as you see the seventh oh, panel, yeah. seven, seven, seven forty-seven, 
Yep. You know, I know it's stock footage, but her just doing that tarot reading, you know, he travels across the ocean mm-hmm. with many others. He brings violence. He brings death. I thought it was just awesome. I, I so love that sequence. That's something so. you don't get in any of the other movies, too. That's what I'm talking about. This movie yeah. has things yeah. like that. That's a good example of the things you only get in this movie, and it's really cool. Yeah. So I'm going to break out of my 5 out of 10 run and actually give the vehicle 7 out of 10. Oh, so. Wow. Wow. I gave the vehicles a six, and that's mainly for the great boat chase, although they do try to ruin it with the slide whistle on the... Isn't it this one, or is it the Golden golden Gun? I always get those two confused. It's Man with the Golden Gun where we have the infamous slide whistle. Well, who can blame me for thinking that a boat jumping over a highway would be in this movie instead of the other one? Because they do everything else with the boat except that in this movie, so okay. But yeah, the boat chase is awesome, And, and again... You know, you and I have talked many times about how Bond movies, there's, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten sort of standard activities, whether it's skiing down a mountain or a boat chase or a helicopter battle. Or there's, there's a certain set number of vehicle battles and chases that they can do. And they've done all of them four, five, six times each, which is fine. But this is a really, really good boat chase. <laughs> this is probably the best boat chase in the whole series. And there have been several, I think. And... Um, and, it, and, and this is the one thing that Sheriff Pepper does that I actually think lends something to the movie is when he plays up the whole Billy Bob and then Billy Bob goes by and it's the, it's the, it's the Kananga henchman and he's like, wait a minute, I love that. That's, that's the one thing he does that isn't too annoying, I thought, was when he, they do a kind of, a, they turn a joke out of it, you know. Um, the white pimp mobile gets some points. The hang glider gets some points. Oh, I'd forgotten about the hang glider. Yeah, that actually first appears. That's actually taken from one of the Daily Express James Bond comic strips. Oh. Years before, they was the first time that Bond. Had, so I always wondered whether they saw it in that and decided to put it in the movie or not. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because you have speedboats and then a hang glider, and then four years later, no, six years later in in Moonraker, you'll have a speedboat with a built-in hang glider. Yeah. So they, they combine yeah. them. Which we saw in at, at Peterson as well. That boat, yeah, thing like cool. So I gave extra points for the hang glider and the pimp mobile, but I took the point away for the, the fact that the evil monorail doesn't go anywhere. I like that you have a villain lair with an evil monorail. Yeah, I me just too. don't. I just don't like that it doesn't go anywhere. So there you go. So I gave it a six. Vehicles get a six. Okay. From me. Oh, now this one I think could be a little controversial. And that's the gadgets, because there's not many in this movie, not that it needed many, but yeah, there's at least one that's fairly memorable, maybe two. So what's your thought on the gadgets? Okay, well, I'm going to actually talk about the one that, again, things that they could have, should, have, should have set up, and I think they actually did film a scene that did it in this one, but then okay. we got the payoff. The shotgun at the end. It's never mentioned beforehand. It's never shown beforehand. Um, and I believe there was a scene earlier on where you actually saw Bond use it to just kill a shark when he was swimming in. Because you get one shot of like the ocean with the shark fins and they're all circling. Um, but they cut it. So you suddenly get this, this MacGuffin at the end that's never been mentioned before. Um, yeah. Other than shooting so, the couch. Other than shooting the couch. So its inclusion at the end made very little sense, narr- very little narrative sense. Um, but uh, the thing, okay, the thing that I do like, the, the Morse code hairbrush... <laughs> Yes. Very. It took me a long time to figure out that when he said he introduces Quarrel Junior and Quarrel says Junior. this is the man who, man who shares my hairbrush, <laughs> I always just thought that was it. That was a thing for like they they were just like almost like brothers, you know. Yeah. Who, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 
And then it, it was probably only four or five years ago that I clicked that what he actually meant was the fact that he was tapping out the code on the, the hairbrush <laughs> and Quarrel was the person with the receiving set picking up the signal. I, I promise you 99.9% of people that have seen this movie did not get that. No, probably. So um, so I like that. I like the bug detector. But obviously the star is the watch. Um, yeah. The magnet thing was fun, particularly at the beginning with M and the spoon. And again, they set it up. Um, it was good that he used it a couple of times in the movie, not just for the zipper on the back of Miss Caruso's yeah. dress, but, you know, trying to get the gunnels, you know, trying to get that boat that was tied up when he was trapped with the crocodiles. Um, and then obviously, at the, and the I have always liked the spinning saw bevel on the watch too. Again, yep. at the end, I thought that was, a, that was a neat thing. So I really love the watch um, and the hairbrush. But again, it's my com- the, the more I watch this, the more I notice it. They didn't set stuff up right. A lot of these gadgets, like the saw bevel was cool, but again, it was not set up. The only thing that was set up on the watch was the magnet. You're right. They, did, they didn't set up the shotgun, and it was a huge thing at the end. Yep. The hairbrush thing was cool, but it, again, it was confusing as to how yep. it was used. It so again, I'm back to my favorite 5 out of 10 for this movie, for the gadgets. No, I agree. Um, I'd for, I'd, I'd, I saw the saw blade on the watch, and it totally went out of my mind. I'd forgotten to, to make a note about it. But yeah, because they don't. That's the only time it's referenced. That's right. Um, yeah, all the Bond movies in the '70s, or a lot of them, seem to suffer from this thing of the way they're edited, the things they choose not to tell us and show us. It seemed like they emphasize like runtime or getting things moving along rather than making things understandable, and that's too bad because we talked about that a lot with uh, Diamonds Are Forever, for example. The idea that there's stuff that's taken out that makes it harder to understand and doesn't set things up properly. And this is a good example of that too. Um, well, with the compressed air bullet, I just got the sense from what we saw that they were just trying to think of a clever way to kill the villain and, you know, doing anything like setting it up, making us aware of it, you know, and it's funny too. I, we, we've talked before about the idea that Q always, and there was no Q in this movie. Nope. It just dawned on me. Um, that, He's mentioned, but you don't actually see him. That's right. Um, always manages to give him the exact gimmick gadget that he needs for that adventure, you know, which is cool. That's, you know, like I always wonder, you know, how would he have made out in Moonraker with this watch instead of the rocket firing <laughs> watch, for example? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It would have been interesting. I don't know. But anyway, um, so I gave the gadgets in this movie a two because the watch can only go so far. And I even counted Teehee's arm as a gadget that was pretty cool, but Butterhook. But I, but I didn't, uh, I didn't think much of them, so I gave them a two. But I don't. Again, I don't think this movie needed a lot of them, so it's not a bad thing in this case. All right, next up is the pre-credit sequence, and there's I think three scenes basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's like three mini pre-credit scenes. I like this pre-credit sequence. We talked about not setting things up in this movie. The one thing that the pre-credit sequence does is actually set up key scenes in the movie. Yes. And it does it very, very well. I mean, you know, you talked about the New Orleans scene earlier on and the funeral. The, the way they set that up in the longer thing, that so, so by the time it gets to Strutter being murdered, all you need to hear is the music. Oh, yeah. And you, and you know what's happened. Absolutely. Um, so I think there's great for, there's foreshadowing of two of the later scenes. I'm not sure what the murder in the United Nations was set up to do because that doesn't really... No, shadow anything. The it other, never the other goes two anywhere. do. Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, 
And also, it's not that like complete mini movie type pre title sequence that I like. Um, right. And of course, right. for a movie where we're introducing a new Bond, there's no Bond. No. It's not actually introduced in the pre-credit sequence. So I That's have to sort of knock it down for, for those two. I do like it, but I think it falls short. So I give it a, a 7 out of 10. That's a really good point that we don't get a dramatic entrance for Roger Moore. He just kind of gets out of bed yeah. in a bathrobe. <laughs> Um, Which, yeah, I suppose for Roger Moore, he's actually quite... Yeah, that's ah, fair. But. That's fair. It's not like Pierce Brosnan hanging upside down in a Russian toilet, but yeah. No. Uh, but what is? Uh, but um, I gave this one extra credit for showing us all three locations of the movie in the pre-credit scene. I don't know if there's any other Bond movie that shows every location you're going to see in the pre-credit sequence. That's I can't, good point. I, yeah, no, I I can't imagine... Is. I can't imagine that there's another one that does that. I mean, Dr. No, maybe, since there's not many in it. it I guess you'd have to go to one that didn't have very many. Right. But that's... But then know. again, they tend to be separate, like yeah. I say, mini-movies that are sometimes a completely separate location that you never see again. So. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you get the... And it's true, and it's interesting, too, because you get all three aspects of this movie. You get the UN, which is the Kananga political figure right. international guy. And again, that... It makes no sense. It doesn't go anywhere. I don't know why he killed the British ambassador randomly, but maybe he was test. See, all right. If that had been the weapon they used at the end to kill Kananga, some kind of sonic weapon, they set it up there. Yeah. Conversely, yeah, that- they could have set the air bullet up there or the knife fighting. Yeah. That, I think that's actually part of my I was a point I was going to make, and it went out of my mind as we were talking. A good villain's death in, in a Bond movie is always when they get hoisted by their own petard. Or yes. it's something to do with their gimmick that backfires. Turn back but on. Kan- yeah, but with Kananga, with the air bullet or the knife fight, none of that, again, is ever mentioned or set up at any point. Right. His death has got nothing to do with him as a character. You know, maybe tying him up in the poppy fields and blowing the poppy fields up. I don't know. Him, the, the, there are a myriad different ways that you could have included that story arc. Um, And what they did made no sense. So have him fall in, have him be the one fall in the casket full of snakes or something. Yeah. But again, instead of the UN scene where you just randomly kill a British ambassador using or diplomat using a sound weapon, just throw that out and have Kananga do something there that at the end is what ends up, yeah. coming back on him because you could set it up in that you had a spot to put that thing and you put something else instead and, and it didn't relate I will say though obviously the uh, the British ambassador was not a popular guy because when he collapsed and died nobody n- nobody could be bothered to even you, get up and see what was wrong with him so I guess he wasn't that popular you saw my tweet right I tweeted no, that I didn't, I, no. oh, oh dang I took a screenshot of it last night when I was watching I was watching on my iPad so I can take screenshots and I tweeted out, I said, the, I said, the entire UN is like all up in arms and aghast at the agonizing death of the British ambassador. And they're all just kind of sitting there like half asleep while he's going, ah, ah on the ground. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I yeah, they just look at, him and then, look at him and go, oh, okay, we'll carry on. Yeah. I guess he's doing something. I'm just going to ignore it. Yeah. I, that was yeah. the, that was so bizarre. Um, so, yeah, we got the UN, we got the funeral. And that, that Again, the two funeral scenes with the music in this movie are absolute classics. And that's Perfect something to do it. that's something else that I wish that Bond had gotten involved in. 
right? If we could have come back around and he had defeated that, if he had survived it, if he had been like chase, like he and like he and Kananga are in New Orleans instead, and they chase each other out in the street as the funeral's coming along, and they have a knife fight there, and Kananga gets stabbed and falls down dead in the street, and they pick his body up and start dancing and going down the road, and Bond just watches him go and waves. That would have been awesome because it would have meant that that funeral doesn't pick sides; they just pick up whatever dead body's there and carry on. You know, that would have been great. Yeah. And that would have fit so well with the beginning and the middle of the movie. You'd have had them show up three times, and each time pick up a body, killed by a knife, yeah. and the third one would have been Kananga. Oh, I, I want to re, I want to rewrite this movie, Alan. We could write a, <laughs> as they say, a banger of a Bond movie if we would put our minds to it, our heads to it. Oh man! Um, if you're listening, Barbara and Michael, um, <laughs> just we're on Twitter. Just drop us a note. Okay. Oh, that's so good. Whoever some weight, who are they? Just. Yeah, Plexico and Porter, the two pieces. That's what you need. That's what you need. But yeah, I I gave the pre-credit sequence an eight just because while there are some strange things about it, it's so unusual and it's so out of the norm. I just enjoy, and again, it could have been better, but I just enjoy that it's such a change of pace. And that alone, I give it high marks for. And then the voodoo ritual of the snake, again, remind me in some ways of voodoo movies, remind me in some ways of King Kong, Mm -hmm. but, but, um, but again, it, it's not something I expected in a Bond movie, and I really liked it. So, um, the actual credit sequence, the credits, and what's going on around and behind them. How do you feel about them in this movie? This is actually one of my more f- memorable and favorite opening credit sequence. I think this is one of the better, if not best, Morris ben- Bender ones. Um, it's recognizably his style, but unlike some of the others, it actually fits well. With yes. the subject and the feel of the movie, um, especially the the transition from the the girl's face to the burning skulls, um, and it's timed well with the theme song. It works well with the theme song. Yeah, this is one of my favourite uh, of his opening credit sequences. So I gave this one an eight out of ten. I think it works really well. It's, it's a memorable one, unlike some of the other ones we've talked about, where you know, you know, if you asked me a couple of days later to describe the opening credit sequence, <laughs> I couldn't do it. This no. one is one of the ones that's, if you pardon the, the pun, burnt into my mind. And <laughs> I, I really uh, recognize, uh, really like this one. So, yeah, it was an 8 out of 10 for me. I gave it an 8 as well. And I'll say um, I agree with you that it's, I think it's up there with Goldfinger as like just the most classic, iconic opening sequences, mostly because of the fire and the skulls and the music that goes along with it so well, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, the one thing about it, though, and, and, and I would, I'm going to go ahead and just retroactively insert this now into my what's aged the worst, is that when you see this one in a vacuum, like if you've never seen a Bond movie before and you see this opening credit sequence, then I think it's, at, and that's how I saw it, you know, then I think it's spectacular. But having seen them all so many times, including the ones after this, I, I, I now, when I watch it, I'm like, oh, this is so good, so good. And then I go, oh, this is where Bender starts down that path that leads us to his 1980s ones, right? When we start getting the same silhouette of the same woman with a gun and the same lights around her and everything. And I'm like, you know, you, you milk that cow... 30 years, Maurice, and eventually it just, you know, by the time we get to like a view to a kill and everything, you're just like, oh no, not another one, you know. So this one was great, but I feel like this is the tipping point where they start 
down a little bit. You're right. I actually haven't thought of it in those terms, but I think you're right. Yeah, this is. I think there were so many good things in there. It was like, oh yeah, let's use that bit again, that that thing again. Let's use yeah. that that trick again, and then it just. I think it just gets lazy. Yes. From that point, yeah. It's yeah. not this movie's fault. No, but it, I, but it reflects backwards back on it badly. I think. Yeah, I take your point. Yeah. Yeah. So so I give it an eight, but it and it is a great one. And yeah, there's there's there are few more iconic moments in the entire series than that "Live and Let Die" song banging when the lady's face turns to a blazing skull. That's absolutely a top ten moment in the entire series. I think so. Yeah. Um, which takes us to the theme song. I mean, what can you say? say? Exactly. Um, Yeah, exactly. Now, this is my joint favorite theme song uh, alongside Thunderbolt, and I would say probably this is the one I've howled along to the most. This is the one that my kids grew up learning to sing. (laughs) Um, And and it's a Paul McCartney song, so what more can I say? Uh, This is a 10 out of 10 for me. This is one of my all-time favorite, if not, depending on my mood, but pretty much most of the time, if you ask me what my favorite Bond song is, it's probably this one, so... It's not my favorite Bond song, personally, but I, I consider this Bond theme song relative to the others the way I consider Sean Connery relative to the other Bonds. You remember, what I always say is Connery is the best, but he's not my favorite. Well, I think it's the same thing here. This may be the best, but it's not my favorite. But I can recognize that even though it's not my favorite, it is in some ways, I mean... I think it is this one and Goldfinger for the most iconic, right? Those two really, between the two of them, define in different ways, right? There's the there's the lady belting out the ballad, and there's the rock band. And those are the two primary ways that Bond's theme songs have been done. One, They kind of alternate, more or less, right? And I think this is, among the rock band versions, this is number one. I think Goldfinger... Finger is probably number one among the the ballads. Again, not my favorite. I like You Only Live Twice, but that's just me. Um, so I acknowledge its excellence, even if it's not my favorite, I give it a 10. And I think that not only that, but I think it's one of the best used throughout the movie. We've talked many times about some Bond theme songs they really only use it at the beginning and the end. Some weave their way through all the scenes of the movie. This one weaves its way through all the scenes of the movie, gives this movie even more of a distinctive feel than it already had, which was pretty dang distinct, as we've talked about. And then heightened scenes, that bum, bum, that, those two notes just are like an alarm clock, something's happening, right? If you're falling yeah, asleep watching this movie yeah. and you hear bum, bum, you're like, uh-oh, uh-oh, here we go, right? It's really, really remarkable how effective just a couple of notes can be when they're done that way. So, yeah, I, I can't praise this. Again, not my favorite song at all. Uh, and I, I like the um, um, Guns N' Roses version, honestly, a lot, too. I was actually going to say, for me, I mean, I, I love it as a Bond song anyway, um, but I, I think it's a great, just a great song. It's one of the ones that there's probably a, a handful that exist and can stand alone outside the fact they're a Bond song. The yeah. people know them as a song, mm-hmm. not necessarily as a Bond theme song. Yeah. Um, and I think this is probably almost the top, probably the top of that list, that people know it as a song, First, yeah. not necessarily knowing it, it's attached to a Bond movie, and 
I was going to say something else, and my mind's gone completely blank on it, so I'll just stick with that. You'll come around to it, and I'll say, yeah, it. it um, the other thing about it is it's so it's such a diverse song. It's got those yeah. powerful impact moments, but then it all it, it's kind of like in some ways, kind of like a rush song where it can go between hard rock, reggae, piano. I mean, it 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 runs the gamut in three or four or five minutes. Yeah, of all types of music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good deal. All right, so we'll just continue that, expand that out a little bit to the score of the movie. What do you think about the overall music score of this movie? I would actually say, you just talked about it, the way that they take the theme, the underlying melody, integrate it in there throughout the movie. I love the fact that in this movie, there are sequences where it's actually really quiet. I mean, the boat chase. There's actually no music to When I think of that boat chase in my head, I think of the Live and Let Die score playing. Yeah, but when you actually watch it, it's only right at the very end in the climactic bit that it actually kicks in, and that makes it more powerful. Yes, um, I actually rate this this George Martin score is probably my favorite non John Barry one. Uh, yeah. Sorry, David Arnold, if you're listening, I love David Arnold's stuff, um, but I, I would put George Martin just a touch ahead of, of David Arnold. Um, though David Arnold knows his Bond and is is a great Bond aficionado, so all power to him on that one. Um, but yeah, this is my favorite non-John Barry score. You, you, like you said, you only have to hear two notes, three notes. You know exactly what movie it's from. You know exactly where it fits. You, it builds tension. It builds excitement. But it's soft when it needs to be. Uh, it's romantic when it needs to be. It's chilling when it needs to be. Um, yeah, it's new. It's fresh. Uh, but it's still, it's still recognize. It's so different from John Barry, mm-hmm. but it's still recognizably Bond. Um, and for yes. that reason, it's another one. That, it's another ten out of ten for the for the music. No, you're right. It that's cool. that's right. That it it is um, that's something else about it that's unique to this movie in some ways. It's not John Barry, but it's still there's just so much about this movie that feels different from all the other ones. And that's one of the things I like about this movie is that it is a very iconoclastic Bond movie in so many ways. And it's really interesting to me too, that they chose to start a new Bond off with a movie like this, instead of giving him something safe, right? Like, um, you know, the man with the golden gun seems like it should be the first movie of a new Bond actor, um, rather than one that goes off on this whole voodoo Island, you know, it's just it's just interesting with, with the different music and everything. So, yeah, I and I I just noted that the the theme that runs through it is just prominent enough to get your attention, as I was mentioning a minute ago, but never so much as to take you out of the movie. Even when it grabs mm. you by the throat and shakes you, it, it you're still invested in what's happening. It's not it's it's distracting in a good way rather than in a bad way, if that makes sense. <laughs> I don't know how yeah, else to say it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get what you mean. Yeah. All right, so we really like. I gave it a nine. I just because there's a couple others I like better, so I had to kind of. But but I give it a nine. It's about as good as I can do. Um, all right, we're getting close to the last of our categories here. We have what has aged the best and what's aged the worst about this movie. Um. So I will say the more I watch this movie, the more issues I as you probably gathered from conversation over the previous hour and a half. The more I watch this movie the more issues I see with it, the more problems I see with it. But I will say it still holds up as a fun adventure movie. Um, It's still one of the ones that if I want to watch a a Bond adventure that I don't want to necessarily have to think about too much, I'll put on. You know, um, it's probably one of the top five Bond movies that I'll just throw on just to watch. Um, Yeah. You know, 
have it running in the background while I'm working on something. It, you know, it's it works as a fun adventure movie. And to be honest, I think that boat chase is rarely being beaten, um, particularly if you ignore the clown sheriff. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, the, you know, the story goes that in the script, it just basically said, insert best boat chase ever on the script. <laughs> um, and they did. So, And they did. So, um, yeah, for me, what, what holds up well, it's still a fun adventure with some great action in it. And some great music. So. Yeah. Well, I had mentioned earlier that one of the things I said aged the best was how they use Money Penny. That she's such a good sport that she was. She could have taken the opportunity to to be to get back at Bond if she was resentful, and instead she helped him. And it just said a lot about her. I thought so. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. And that just looks better every every year. I think. Um, I have several. Um, what to, what aged the worst? I think Bond's kitchen decor. We talked about his so 1970s. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I do love so that he had British 1970s oh, too. Yeah, yeah. I do like that he had the espresso machine. And Daniel says, "Is that all it does?" <laughs> like he's waiting for it. What for? What for me is is is, is the blamange, the copper blamange molds on the on the. Yeah, and it's like really Bond makes fancy blamanges for kids' parties. I, I don't <laughs> know. It's like, but. You know, that's one thing I think the Daniel Craig movies did get better was the idea that he'd been living somewhere for a long time and never even put pictures up on the wall because he just doesn't sit around the house. You know, he's always doing yeah. something and just never had any desire to decorate and entertain. You know, I thought that I yeah. thought that was very effective when we see that in one of the later, maybe Skyfall or whatever, one of the later ones. Um, the other worst was just the black exploitation elements, of course, but I think it as a slice of time. I'm kind of glad this movie preserves some of that because that's true. That's how, you know, a lot of movies were in that era. And I don't think that there's a lot disrespectful. In other words, when I, you know, our, let me put it this way. Our next category is the double taking pigeon, most cringeworthy moment award. And the fact that this movie has so much of the black exploitation stuff, and yet none of that is my most cringeworthy moment. I think, if you're going to praise black exploitation, <laughs> you know what I mean? Then I'm going to do it here because it, it never felt insulting. It was formulaic and cliched and stereotypical, but it was never insulting. Does that, am I wrong right here? No, I think you're right. I mean, I had the stereotyping, um, you know, I, did, what my note is what didn't help, what, hold up well. And I've got, well, actually it's a long list. Let's start with the stereotyping. Yeah. Uh, both regional and racial, but um, yeah, that doesn't hold up well. But like you said, I, it it's not insulting. It's of its time, right? Um, it, it you know it is riffing off the the black exploitation movies of of the period. So um, yeah, it, looking at it today, it gets a little comfortable at times. But overall, I don't think it's that. On a, on a more prosaic note, for me, what didn't hold up was um, that that line um, of um, Kananga, Mr. Big Kananga, when he said, you know, apart from the phone company, I'll be the only monopoly in the camp- in the country. Well, uh, the, that reference didn't age well, did it? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, they busted AT and T up right after that. I remember. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and to me, what didn't age well is actually Roger's take on Bond, because at this point he's not Bond. He's Roger Moore trying not to be Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's settled into his take on the character here, other than let's be different than Sean. I don't really feel that he's Bond yet in this one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that didn't... Yeah, I agree with you. It doesn't bother me for this movie, though, because 
he does the things that he does well, and that's always fun and entertaining in this movie. It, it bothers me a lot more than The Man with the Golden Gun just because it's not as good of a movie. And so when yeah. he's still not doing, when he still doesn't seem like Bond, it stands out harsher, I think, in that movie. And it makes us, it bothers us more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I. But we'll I, talk about that. We'll talk about that next time. Yes, I stand by that though. That that I that it, I I'll put it this way: if anybody wants to take offense at the black exploitation stuff in this movie, you don't need my permission to. That's fine. I totally get it. But I'm just and and I would want to ask Delvin or somebody else that would have a more personal you know stake in it and feeling about it. But but as for me, I just it never. And maybe I'm wrong, but I just felt like it handled it about as well as you could in 1973. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it is very much a movie of its time. Absolutely. So speaking of the double-taking pigeon, what was your most cringeworthy moment? And you got some to choose from, obviously. Uh, for me, it comes down to the sexual politics. And uh, to be honest, what is little more than coerced rape by Bond with Solitaire. Um, yeah, uh, it's just that I get more uncomfortable every time I see that um, scene. It's... And then he admits it, and she's like, oh, it's too late now. No yeah, big deal. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. And I'm just- We're good. Uh, uh, yeah, and the whole thing of her just being, like I said, just treating a woman as a possession to, oh, you know, well, he's had his way with her, so Kananga doesn't want any more. It's, she's your possession now. And then and- she's like, yeah, let's do it again. And he's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I, I, I went with the more prosaic, silly things like Kananga going boom with the with the with the um, the air blow, air bullet, and then just everything with Sheriff Pepper. Uh-huh. He Sheriff Pepper is the human double taking pigeon. Yeah. And um, he does some double taking, and he makes me double take. Yeah. All right. Um, we're almost to the end. What is your best Bond moment for this film? The improvised flamethrower. Using yes. the aftershave That's and the awesome. lit cigar. Just the fact that he's trapped and he uses what's available to him, he improvises using his wits and skills rather than something Q built for him. I thought it was great. Um, I love that scene. I will admit, for years growing up, I actually thought that the aerosol was a Q gadget. Yeah. That he pressed the button one way and got a flame, and yeah. he pressed it again another way and he got Why aftershave. wouldn't you I think that? Yeah. And, until I was actually at college and a friend in our dorm actually showed me how to do that with an aerosol can and a, and a cigarette lighter. And I was like, oh, that's how he did it. Yeah, isn't that awesome? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought the same thing when I was a kid, for sure. I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah. So, But for me, yeah, I, I love those moments in Bond movies or any spy movie or anything like that where somebody just uses what's available for them. They just use their surroundings and, you know, things to improvise their way out of a situation. Yeah, um, I just thought it was so damn cool. So I still think it is. It was, and then it gives us that great scene later when Rosie goes in the bathroom and he and screams and he says, "Oh, the snake! I meant to tell you, you should never go in there without a mongoose." <laughs> yes, <laughs> Roger is really good at those kind of lines, right? Yes, I think he is. That, yeah, I think that's one of the things they figured out in this movie and why they kept making trying to make the movies funny. And so, in some ways, it worked against him and it worked against the Bond series that Roger was so good at, at, at charmingly funny stuff that they tried to do more and more of that. And so, the movies get kind of goofy and charmingly funny when maybe if he hadn't been so good at it, they wouldn't have done that. So, it's kind of a yeah. double-edged sword, you know? <laughs> but he yeah, I think it was. That. Yeah, I think they lent into it way too much by the end. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. But, but he does but at that so point, well. yeah, I thought that was, that was really cool. So. Um, 
This is, you know, I don't think there were a lot of great Bond moments in this movie. I don't think that there were a lot of moments where he really, like you said, it was James Bond and he really acts like James Bond. In fact, there are quite a few moments in this movie that he's kind of the victim, like the 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 circle the circling I love the the two things in the fillet of soul like the, the the chair that spins around and then the yeah, table yeah. that drops down that thing goes down fast by the way you could get a nosebleed driving riding on that <laughs> table down in the basement but but um, um but those are classic Bond things those chairs that take you somewhere or tunnels that drop you somewhere that's cool um, I'm gonna have to say though although I do like when he shows up at the end with the black suit with the big brown holster and the giant like Magnum or whatever to blow holes and yeah. stuff. That was something we never saw Connery do. No, or um, never, never did again, even though they dressed Craig, uh, Craig in that way for publicity. For a poster. Never did it in a movie. That's yeah, right. For a yeah. yeah. For Spectre, I think. Um, well, we'll talk about that. The, um, I'm going to, you can send your hate mail to, <laughs> to, to white rocket books at gmail.com. But I thought that, his best Bond moment, for better or worse, was the whole seduction of solitaire scene. For all that we can say about that scene being bad overall, I thought Roger as Bond in that scene was about as charming and charismatic as he ever can be. And so, as terrible of a thing overall as it looks now, his performance there, he was so smooth, uh, so seductive, that you could see where he's going to go with that in every movie until he's 58 years old for the next 15 years, basically, or 12 years anyway. So, so just his performance in it to me was the best Bond moment. Not the scene; it's not what he's actually doing, but what he's his performance. Um, all right, we are to the overall rating of this movie on a scale of one to ten, and I'm really curious to see where your number is going to come out after you've been kind of all over the place on this one. I've been, I've been more positive about it. You kind of been all around, so let's see how it plays out. Okay, so my before I started, my subjective score was seven out of ten. Okay, and my actual mathematical average was seven point one seven, so I was not that far out. Wow. Wow. Well, I have no idea what my actual mathematical number is going to end up being. All I have is my subjective score. If, if you've been keeping track, then, then you can tell us. Sometimes you do, and then otherwise we can go back and look at it. But my subjective score, just how do I feel about this movie at the end? I said it's got a true, it's a true classic. It's a very unique Bond. It stands alone, stands on its own. It has great music, great villains, great Bond girl. It's different in some key ways. And it even has that great last scene that you'd never see in any... I mean, there's there's no Bond movie that has um, Blofeld on the front of a train <laughs> laughing, you know, or anything like that to give you this sense. It's, it was, that was much more of a, like, Ming the Merciless and Flash Gordon, the villain's not really dead, he's off laughing somewhere kind of a scene, you know? So with all that together, um, it's not one of my absolute favorites, but it's it's just below my top five. It's somewhere in my top ten as well. I'm, I give it an eight. Okay. Well, your actual average uh, was seven point five eight. Yeah. So round that up to an eight. There we go. We're both pretty close. Not bad. Yeah. Not yeah. bad. Yeah. I think it was the gadgets that probably hurt it the most for me. But as I said, it didn't need them. So honestly, I probably should have made that a little higher. But oh well. What's done is done. That, that actually, in your scores, ties it with Thunderball. Yeah. Well, that's fair. I mean. Because Thunderball is not nearly as unique as this movie. Thunderball is a great example of one kind of Bond movie, and this is a great example of another kind. So I, that's fair yeah. enough. 
Good deal. All right. Uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up for tonight? Um, like I said, for me, it's definitely a product of his time. Um, I think that shows more than some of the other Bond movies do. It's very much a, a movie of the 70s, the early 70s. Um, and like I said, each time I watch it, I get a little more uncomfortable with it. I see more problems with it. So um, I'm not sure if it's going to stay in my top 10. It might drop down slightly. Um, be interesting when we get to the end, all these rankings and how that ranks up. But um, yeah. but still a fun adventure. Um, like I said, one I'll, I'll put on and, and watch and have running in the background. So um, partly because just so I can listen to that awesome score um, <laughs> as, as, as it plays out and watch the boat chase. So, yeah, um, just going to leave it like that. Yeah, no, I think yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it 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 I think it's a snapshot in time of a particular time and place, particular time of type of culture. And I think that it's very effective in the things it tries to do. I think that we agree that there are things it could have done better all across the board, but even st- I think it's a great tribute to this movie and the people that made it that for all the faults and for all the ways it could have been better, it's still really really good. So, I'm I'm it's one of my favorites. I will say the one thing we've not talked about is this is one of the movies along with GoldenEye that probably saved the franchise. Yeah. So, you know, because, you know, Sean left, we tried somebody else, Sean came back, we can't have Bond without Sean, okay, we're going to have Bond without Sean. Again. Again. Is it going to work a second time? Right. Um, uh, And, you know, this was a much more popular reboot of the series with the new actor and proved that they could reboot it with a new actor um and really to an extent if this one had not worked i think the franchise would have probably fizzled out so um i i think it 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 holds a special place in the in the bond movie canon for that reason alone i think it it couldn't be much more different from on her Majesty's secret service i mean as far as as yeah. far as post Sean going in a different direction with a new actor, the two are completely. The only thing yeah. they have in common is the the Bond villain, you know, running some kind of big scheme involving, uh, you know, well, I guess not drug, but mind control or whatever. But yeah, so uh, yeah, they got it right this time. They made a fun movie. They didn't. They yeah. didn't try to film the book and be all highbrow. They just said let's let's have fun. Yep, and and it is so. All right. Well, that was Live and Let Die. Uh, join us. I'm glad we're back. I'm glad we're back at it again. We, we got Yeah, back me together. too. Got the band back together. So next time, we will be looking at The Man with the Golden Gun. So I'll, I'll talk to you uh, pretty soon, Alan. All right. Sounds great, man. Looking forward to it. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.